Esther chapter 4, and we're going to read the whole chapter. <clears throat> Hear the word of God. When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. And she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, whom he had appointed to attend her, and she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in the front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So Hathak returned, told Esther the words of Mordecai. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called is but one law, put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these thirty days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words, and Mordecai told them to answer Esther, Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go into the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. Amen. Father, we come before your word, and it is our desire to grow as we understand it and to continue to worship you. May you be pleased with uh, the responses of our hearts and of our lives. Pray that you would anoint and enable me to preach your word effectively. And Father, that you would quicken that word to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus said that Satan was a liar from the beginning and the father of lies, and he said he was a murderer from the beginning, and he also fathers violence in the lives many times of those who follow him. And uh, I think if you have been here very long, you're quite familiar with what the hot spots of persecution around the world are. And in some of the countries, the attempted genocide of Christians, I think, is equally as horrific as what was going on in the book of Esther. And I think in chapter 4 we've got some powerful applications of what our responses ought to be when we see such uh, persecution. But we're not just going to apply it to a persecution. We're going to apply it to uh, the disasters and the stresses we face. I think if you're alive, <laughs> you've probably faced stress. You've probably faced crisis situations. Maybe not as stressful as what they went through. But I think that this chapter shows us what our responses need to be when things go bad. Now, our focus last week was uh, not only describing the tyranny of the government and uh, seeking to show how all of this flowed from God's sovereignty, what our, res uh, uh, not our responses, but what our understanding of that uh, tyranny should be and uh, the application. Uh, but um, we saw that God was not taken by surprise. Esther and Mordecai were. But uh, he was not. In fact, I want you to turn with me to Ezekiel chapters 38 
and 39. Some of you thought I just went through the material uh, too quickly. I probably shouldn't have tacked it on to the end of the last sermon. It wasn't essential to have it on there. Uh, and they thought, boy, it'd be nice to at least be able to see some of the verses in Ezekiel 38, 39 and how it relates uh, to uh, the book of Esther. Both passages deal with the battle of Gog and Magog, or if you're Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew pronounces it Gog and Magog. Uh, so if you want to be technically accurate, it's Gog and Magog, but uh, we, we will follow the English pronunciation as we go through it. And I should point out before we look at this passage that the battle of Gog and Magog in this chapter is a totally different battle from the battle of Gog and Magog at the end of the book of Revelation, which is at the end of history. And almost all commentators of whatever persuasion agree with that. They say there's two separate battles and they come from different places. I mean, there's so many differences. Commentators agree that there are two different battles. What most people see, though, is that this battle, both battles are yet future to us. And uh, they say one is before the millennium, one is after the millennium. What I want to demonstrate to you is that uh, uh, the, the battle of Gog and Magog in this chapter was fulfilled, and I think we demonstrated that last week, but was fulfilled in the book of Esther. And what Revelation does when it picks up this language to describe some conflict, spiritual conflict at the end of time, is it's using this historical battle as symbolism of uh, battle in the future. And it does that with other nations. For example, there's symbolism in the book of Revelation with Babylon, which no longer existed, and with Sodom. Sodom was long destroyed. Nobody even knows where Sodom exists, but he calls uh, Jerusalem Sodom, right? That great city where also our Lord was crucified, it, it speaks of. And so I, I just want to very quickly give you just a, a bit of a review of... Um, how Gog and Magog, again, fulfills, is fulfilled in the book of Esther to a T. Uh, take a look at chapter 38, verse 2. And we'll just pick and choose a few verses here. Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. So we see the figure of Gog. Also notice the land of Magog is, is uh, mentioned uh, there. And we saw last week that the term Agag was a term for any Amalekite leader. And Numbers 24-7 talks about that, 1 Samuel 15-8. If you compare the two passages, you'll see that that is true. Uh, Jewish Encyclopedia and a number of others draw that out. But we also saw how the Amalekites descended from Magog, the son of Japheth. So if you look in Genesis chapter 10 sometime, it shows the sons of Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Okay, there were the three sons of uh, Noah. And uh, one of Japheth's sons was Magog, and he developed different nations. Well, one of those nations was uh, the Amalekites. And uh, there have been several essays showing the, the, uh, the Amalekites uh, flowing from that nation. But there's a Gog connection as well. We saw how Gog and Agag have exactly the same meaning, and in the Hebrew, same uh, consonants, uh, very close spelling, um, and when you see, when you see uh, differences between Persian and Hebrew, the spelling differences make perfectly logical sense. But what's more to the point here is in terms of biblical usage. If you look up Numbers 24, verse 7, you look at in the Hebrew, and then you look it up in the ancient Jewish-Greek translation, you will see that the Greeks there translated the word Agag with the name Gog. And uh, so the ancient Hebrews saw it in them as synonyms. We also saw that even though this guy has an empire-wide uh, conflict against Israel, in fact, I'm going to throw up a, a map here again. And boy, you know, you're going to have to peel up something to be able to get all of the, the words on there. What's that? We could... Uh, is there more room on that one? You can see on this map the empire-wide nature of this conflict. And uh, it starts way on Ethiopia in the southwest, and it goes all the way up to, to north of Greece, and then on to 
the uh, land of India on the far side. Now, here's the point that I want to draw out on, on this particular one. Even though this guy, this Gog, uh, has an empire-wide network of people attacking Israel, he is simply a prince in Ezekiel 38, verse 2, and he's also simply a prince in Esther 3, verse 1. Now, that's rather odd language for such an empire-wide uh, mobilization of troops against Israel. You would expect that the emperor himself would be involved, that the king is involved, and yet you don't have that. In both passages, it's merely a prince who leads that. Now, he's the chief prince in Esther, and in here uh, the NIV translates uh, that Rosh instead of Prince of Rosh. Uh, they translate that as uh, the chief prince. But either way you take it, it's merely a prince. And so I think that's a significant point. Thirdly, we looked at this map of Persia. We saw how every region in the empire of Darius in 510 uh, is mentioned in terms of the boundaries. And uh, some of you weren't able to write uh, uh, real quickly, so I thought we'd go ahead and put the names that you find in Ezekiel uh, uh, put them on the map, and there's differences of opinion on Magog exactly where that uh, uh, that figures uh, in, exactly where the Amalekites, because both Magog and the Amalekites, they're just not sure exactly where they were because they were nomadic. They, uh, they moved around. Now, the interesting thing we pointed out last week is that India is not mentioned in Ezekiel, and that's significant because Darius does not conquer India for another four years. So when you're in Esther, where the battle takes place in 510 B.C., um, uh, the, the uh, land of India is not present, but all of the other nations there are. And so again, there's a, there, there's a close connection uh, between that. Um, chapter 39, verse 21, uh, mentions all of the nations in between. So you've got a listing of all of the boundaries, and then he says all of the nations uh, in between were involved in that uh, conflict. Okay, look at verse 8. Some other proofs that this was fulfilled in the Persian period. Verse 8 mentions that this is going to take place shortly after the Jews return to Israel. And then if you look at chapter 39, verses 21 through the end of that chapter, that really amplifies on the return of Israel to, uh, to the land. And that's already happened in the book of Esther, right? There's already been two returns to the land of Israel. There's been one under Zerubbabel, and then there was another one under, um, um, what was that? Ezra. That's the name I was trying to think of. And that happened at the court on the year of the coronation. There's going to be another one uh, later on under uh, Nehemiah. So again, that, that fits uh, in uh, very, uh, very nicely there. At least that's on the old chronology. And if you haven't been here for the first three sermons, you're just going to have to assume that I'm right that uh, Darius was the king of Hasuerus rather than Xerxes. I've got a paper that uh, gives some of the, uh, the proofs of that. Now take a look at verse 11 for another proof. It says, You will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. Now in 510 B.C., there were no walls around Jerusalem. There were no walls around any of the, the towns there. None of the gates had been able to uh, be built. In another eight years, that's not going to be true, though, because Nehemiah is going to come back in another, um, in another eight years, and uh, he is going to... It's in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. He's going to build within that year uh, the walls around Jerusalem, and some of the other towns get walls as well. So that rules out the interpretation I used to hold to, that this was during the time of the Maccabees. And it really can't be any time after this, because Jerusalem has always had walls uh, after that uh, period. So again, there's a narrowing down of the focus to the reign of Darius. Verse 12 mentions plunder. Chapter 38, verse 12, just like Esther does. And I'm not going to go through all of the proofs again that we gave last week, but if you look at chapter 39, verse 11, in the last phrase... It speaks of the name of Haman. It says, therefore, they will call it the Valley of Haman Gog. This is where all the Gogites or the Agagites were buried. And again, when you're looking in, in Ezra, in, I'm sorry, in Esther, the pronunciation, I think, is the Persian pronunciation. 
And in Ezekiel, it's the Hebrew pronunciation of his name, and that, that therefore makes perfect sense of the long A and long O versus the short A and the short O, but it's the same name uh, as uh, you find in each book. And then you'll see the name of Haman coming up in verses 16, 15 and 16 as well. Uh, both passages refer to a reversal where Israel destroys those who attempt to destroy them. Both speak of an enormous number of dead. Uh, both passages harmonize on where the seven-month wait is going to be. In fact, uh, let me just go ahead and read that. That's chapter 39 and uh, verses 12 and following. For seven months the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. Indeed, all the people of the land will be burying and they will gain renown for it on the day that I am glorified, says the Lord God. They will set apart men regularly employed with the help of a search party to pass through the land and bury those bodies remaining on the ground in order to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they will make a search. The search party will pass through the land, and when anyone sees a man's bone, he will set up a marker by it till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Haman Gok. And then it goes on to mention the city of Hamona, which is another reference to uh, the name there. Now, the reason for that wait, uh, some commentators point out, even those who say it's going to be in the future, is that they had to wait till the Feast of Tabernacles in order to get the waters of cleansing. And the way the waters of cleansing were made, according to the Pentateuch, is they would take the ashes of the burnt red heifer and they would uh, mix those ashes with water and uh, then they would be able to do their purification. So there's a seven-month wait. Well, that's exactly the period of time between Purim and the Feast of Tabernacles. And there's just a lot of little details like this where the, the two passages harmonize. Uh, we saw that Ezekiel's Gog and Magog battle has to be fulfilled in a period of time when Israel is divided up into tribes. And there aren't any tribes of Israel now. Uh, they are so intermarried and intermixed that there's no way of discerning uh, who is what. It has to be fulfilled in a time when they're using horses, bows, arrows, war clubs, other wooden instruments. And it's not just a few. If you look at verse 4 of chapter 38, in the very last phrase, there it says, All splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. And look at the last phrase of verse 5, uh, All of them with shield and helmet. And some of the other references in there, chapter 39 especially, it mentions an enormous number of arrows and javelins and war clubs and shields and all those kinds of things. So it's in a time of history when they're still using uh, those primitive in instruments. It's not describing modern warfare. And there are other proofs like uh, the earthquakes that were present uh, during this period of time. Uh, Seberg, 1932, um, draws that out. But I think these evidences by themselves are sufficient to show God had prophesied this devastating thing 75 years before. That's when Ezekiel prophesied it, which means God had ordained this. Now, when things like this happen, what should our responses be? When our heart starts to pound and we, we see devastating things happen, how should we respond? And I want you to look at Esther, and uh, we're going to quickly go through this chapter and show what we need to do. First point is that you should never allow prophecy of the future or allow the doctrine of God's sovereignty to make you passive in uh, your response. This was prophesied. Mordecai the prophet probably realized that it was prophesied, and yet he was not fatalistic or passive. Look at verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth ashes, went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and a bitter cry. So he didn't flee. He didn't go into hiding. He didn't take the attitude of fatalism, come, sirrah, sirrah, you know, whatever will be, will be. No, he, he, he sought to do something about this. He prays out to the Lord. He cries out to Him. He knows God has predestined all things, and yet he knows God has worked through means. And I think we need to realize that as well. Prayer is absolutely essential. You don't have because you don't pray, James says. I uh, have not because you ask not. Daniel 9 is another great passage along these lines where Daniel realizes that the 70 years that were prophesied of Israel's exile are up. He's calculated them from Jeremiah. And so what does he do? Does he sit back and say, ah, oh, great, okay, we're going to watch God bring Israel back into the land. No, he didn't sit back and do, do nothing. He also realizes that Scripture says... 
that if Israel does not humble itself and does not pray, they're not going to come back into the land. So he prays, and he prays passionately. Now, the reason I mention this is because there are so many people who uh, try to play off divine sovereignty against human responsibility, and they'll try to ditch one or the other. But you can't have human responsibility if God, by His sovereignty, doesn't enable us to be, to be responsible. The two really dovetail together, and I think they're essential for our comfort. Uh, there are people with a different eschatology who have uh, given up on trying to affect our culture because they say, hey, prophecy says things are getting worse and worse, and there's no point in even trying. I don't know if any of you guys have run across people who say that, but it's very frequently the attitude. And uh, if our hearts are in tune with God's Spirit, I don't think He's going to allow us to do that because He's going to draw us to weep over the situation that's in this world. Uh, he'll cause us to not be satisfied with the way things are in this world. He'll give us a holy dissatisfaction. And I think some people have given up on the persecuted church in other countries like in Sudan because it just seems like a lost cause. Why should I be involved in their lives? But it is not. God calls us to prayer and action. And who knows? The letter that you send off, you know, to encourage and comfort a believer in some, some Sudanese or Pakistani jail, who knows? Maybe the jailer who opens it up and reads it first may be converted through that. But we need to do what we can to try to help out. Now, some people say, why pray if God predestines the future? You know, God's going to do it, whether you pray or don't pray. Well, we've got to realize that God works through means. And the question is not, why pray if uh, God controls all things? The question is, if God does not control all things, if He can't change men's hearts, then why pray to Him? Because He can't do anything about it anyway. You know, if God can't change men's wills, then we ought to pray to men's wills rather than to God's will. And I think a lot of people treat God as not having a free will. God's the one who's constantly frustrated rather than man being frustrated. And I think that prayer on the Calvinistic scheme, we pray. We pray passionately because we believe God can control it. He can change people's hearts. He can do all things. So we go to the one who not only can do it, but who has commanded us to provide the means by which he will work. And if you pray not, you won't have. And I've spent a lot of time on that first point, but I think it really is a critical one. We should never allow prophecy or God's control of the future to make us passive about the future. That's not why it was intended by the, the, the Scripture. Second point is related. Not only should we be in prayer and fasting, that's looking to God to change the situation, but we need to be trying to get people to change the situation as well. And again, this is a, an imbalance that many people uh, have. Uh, notice in verse 1 that Mordecai is very vocal about his disapproval, okay? Uh, he's crying out. I mean, everybody can hear him. What's wrong with this guy? You know, he's crying out about this injustice, and he goes all the way to the king's gate in verse 2, and that's as far as they'll let him go says, he went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. Now, we're not told why, you know, nobody could go into the king's gate. Um, you know, maybe the king just didn't like unhappy thoughts. Uh, kings weren't noted for hiring court mourners. They tended to hire court jesters, right? <laughs> they wanted to be happy, but it's not just kings. I think all of us have a tendency to not want to think about negative things that are out there. Persecution, you know, it depresses me. I don't like to read uh, about that kind of stuff. Or if it's a personal calamity, there are some people who are in total denial about how bad their marriage is. Or they're in total denial about their business going down their tubes or their stocks going, uh, going south. And they're not taking the action because they're in denial. Mordecai seeks resolution by trying to point out to anyone who, how bad things really are. And I think we need to be aware of how bad things are in the church uh, worldwide. We need to subscribe to Voice of the Martyrs in terms of understanding persecution. By the way, uh, there is a new project that they've come up with I think is kind of neat. Uh, we've got it on the front of our fridge, but uh, they've got kind of vacuum seal kind of bags, and uh, they've got a list of things that you can put into there. It can be, you know, underwear and soap and sweaters and different things like that, personal effects, and then it gets sealed up. You pay five bucks for processing of it, 
and they send it to a person in a persecuted a, a Christian in a persecuted country, and you can in a very tangible way then be ministering to them. And you you send along a picture of yourself, not your address. They don't want uh, addresses and phone numbers because that could get complicated. But in terms of people, uh, who knows uh, what kind of contacts you might have, but. The reason I'm mentioning this in verse 2 is it appears that Mordecai does not want to mourn in private because as if there's nothing he can do. He's a magistrate, right? And so he tries to do everything that he can as a magistrate to make things right, to get to the attention of the king. Now, he's not successful. This king has managed to insulate himself from the pain that is out there. But uh, he tries then to get to Esther. And I think Mordecai stands as an encouragement that we need to seek justice from government as well. We need to protest to the government. And if we don't get redress or we ha don't have access to the government, we need to seek to stir up the hearts of people who do. Like Mordecai was stirring up the heart of Esther to try to make a difference. And we need to have concern, he says here, that it's all of the people. He wasn't just looking out for his own skin. He was asking her to intercede on behalf of all of the people. I think we've got to have a heart for people in persecuted countries. Now, a third point under Roman numeral two there is don't engage in political activism without prayer. Okay, it's very easy to go to one extreme or the other. There are some people that uh, their passion is prayer and they're never involved in doing anything about it. And uh, there's other people who are very activist but aren't involved in prayer much. Don't think that prayer by itself is enough. Uh, both are needed. You know, James says, faith without works is dead. Well, prayer without works is dead too. And the reason it's not going to be answered is God doesn't answer disobedient prayers. And so the two really have to go hand in hand. Now, thirdly, call others to prayer. Another reason why Mordecai did this publicly, I believe, was to call any and all Jews who would notice that this is something serious, this is something we need to be in prayer and fasting. And, um, and, and, and it, uh, again, this uh, calls people all over the empire. Now, whether he directly called them or they just did it spontaneously, there is a massive prayer movement here. Verse 3. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. And I think we live in, we live in troubling times today, too, with the millions of abortions, babies being murdered. When you look at uh, the kinds of things that are happening uh, in the state, you know, even, even things like the, what's this new security measure? My mind's not working this morning, but... Uh, yeah, Homeland Security. Uh, to me, it seems like such an unnecessary power grab, an invasion of privacy. Why is it that it's the citizens, you know, as opposed to uh, non-citizens who always end up getting that? But I think we need, to, uh, we need to really be calling people to prayer on behalf of the things that are happening. We have a prayer meeting in this church, and once again, you may get tired of hearing me say this, we invite you to the prayer meeting. And if the reason you're not coming to the prayer meeting on Monday mornings is because it's too early, then suggest an afternoon time when we can meet. I would be delighted to have that. Or we could have three or four prayer meetings. I don't care, but we're not changing it until I get people saying, Phil, we're committed. We're going to do an afternoon prayer meeting. And we get several people to do that. We'll, we'll make some changes. But I really do encourage you to pray together. A fourth thing I see in this chapter is simply the observation that it's very easy to be satisfied with just dealing with symptoms. Here's Esther. She doesn't know what the situation is. She sees Mordecai. He's, uh, he's weeping. He's crying out. At least it's reported to her. And he's wearing sackcloth and ashes, which is a symbol of his humiliation and his prayer before God. And what does she do? What she does is she doesn't like weeping saints. So she tries to get him to stop crying. She never asks, you know, what's going on. Take a look at verse 4. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. And why should he accept them? The situation's not changed. She's upset with the symptoms, and she just wants him no longer to be a weeping prophet, okay? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, or I love you, or whatever the symptom, you know, the way of expressing it might be. I just don't want you crying, you know? Let's, let's, let's put on a, a happy face. Let's, uh, let's not worry about the pain that is out there. And so she's dealing with the surface, 
And he's forcing her to go a little bit uh, more deeply. And I think too many Christians are symptom treaters when it comes to persecution. Uh, they're satisfied because the government is sending over, um, you know, food, for example, to people who are starving in some of these countries, little realizing what we are doing is we are propping up the very demonic economic system of socialism that's causing the famine, and we're also putting an economic tool, a weapon, into the hands of these governments that they use as an ideological weapon against those who don't cooperate. Instead of dealing with symptoms, we need to go after the disease itself, and I think this is true in, 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 in every area of life, whether we're dealing with counseling or, or we're dealing with uh, something else. This is one of the reasons we have nation discipling emphasis in our missions. Now, we may give the odd gift here and there, but as far as ongoing, ongoing giving in missions, we've been looking for missions organizations that not only want people saved from... Uh, hell, but want people saved from their sins in every area, have a worldview that is uh, all-encompassing and that are trying to affect the culture and are making a difference in the culture. And I think that's what uh, God has called us to do. Don't just deal with the symptoms. Let's deal with, let's deal with the, uh, the root cause. Don't just put a Band-Aid on the pain. I think that's what a lot of counseling does, but uh, uh, really get in, into deeply involved in the person's life. Now, she quickly wakes up to this, and in verses 5 through 9, she gets the facts. This is point 5. Before decisions are made, we ought to understand what the problem is more deeply, and let's just read through this. Then Esther called Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, whom he had appointed to attend her, and she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and that he might command her to go into the king and to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So Hathak returned and told Esther the words of uh, Mordecai. Now, we've already covered the substance of the tyranny, so we're not going to deal with that. But the point I want to make is that we cannot, we cannot make wise decisions without adequate knowledge. Uh, wisdom and knowledge are different things, but you can't make wise decisions unless you have uh, adequate knowledge. In fact, one of my desires is, um, as, uh, for our congregation is that as God causes the congregation to grow and He prospers the things that we're doing in the community, we're probably going to need to hire a research person that can give us, sort through the information that's out there, give adequate information to be able to take the kinds of actions that need to be taken. But it's just true in all of life. You know, you ought not to get married until you research the person. It shouldn't just be an emotional thing. Oh, yeah, emotionally we twig. That's great. Uh, you need to research. You know, is this person going to be a help meet if it's the wife or somebody that... Uh, for the rest of my life is going to fit with the calling that God has uh, placed upon me. Uh, we need to uh, investigate the facts before we discipline our children, before we buy a house. It doesn't matter what it is. Uh, information. Now, here, here's a problem. I, should, I probably should mention this. Some people spend so much time researching, they never make a decision. And uh, I wasn't looking at anybody in particular. <laughs> 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 no, they make decisions. <laughs> but we're not God, so we'll never have all of the information that we would like to have to make a risk-free decision, right? And so there's extremes that we can go to. We have to always be making decisions without all of the information, but we're just saying, let's avoid the extremes, okay? Where we say, hey, I don't have all the information, so I'm just going to make a decision without investigating uh, versus the other. That was terrible. I need... <laughs> The sixth thing that she does is to weigh the options, or again, Mordecai is forcing her to weigh the options. Let's read verses 10 through 14. <clears throat> then Esther spoke to Hathak and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. Now, we're not told why. Maybe she fell out of favor. 
We're not told why, but God providentially has made it very difficult. She's going to have to go out of the way in order to do what needs to be done. Verse 12, so they told Mordecai Esther's words, and Mordecai told them to answer Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. And I think he's putting his finger on the nub of the issue. It's fear. And maybe she thinks that, uh, you know, if she just ignores things and doesn't make a decision, things will go away. And nobody knows maybe that she's, uh, you know, a Jew. But her aides know, you know, they know she's related to Mordecai. But it's fear. It's, it, it, fear can paralyze people into inactivity when it's precisely a quick decision that needs to be made. And so I think she is maybe a little bit paralyzed uh, by, by fear here. And he goes on, verse 14, he says, If you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Uh, why would he say that she and her father's house would perish if he also says that God's going to raise up deliverance for the Jews in another place? Some commentators have said this was a threat, that somehow he would make sure that she gets killed. Uh, to me, that's I, I just cannot see how... He, he didn't even have access to the palace, I mean, to her part of the palace. So I'm not sure he, how he would accomplish that. So I don't see this as a threat. What I see this as is that Mordecai knows from the Bible that God has promised that the Jews cannot be exterminated. It's impossible. The Messiah is going to come through these Jews. And so somehow God is going to spare at least some of the Jews, but he may not spare all if we are not uh, active. And I am high profile so I know I'm toast, and people know that you're related to me, so you're toast as well. Uh, your aides all know, and the reason you're toast doesn't matter how much the king loves you, he's made a decree, and that decree is irreversible. See, the king, I think, uh, um, uh, there's indication that he, I don't know what the right word is, he regretted the decision that he'd made with regard to Vashti. Just like uh, earlier, an earlier Darius had regretted the decision, the decree he made with Daniel, and he was weeping over it, you know, but he can't change the laws of the Medes and the Persians, can't change the law. And so she is going to die because there are people who know her relationship to Mordecai. I think that's what he is saying there. Now, what he's doing is he's helping her to weigh the options. Should I take a huge risk? And the risk could be that I will die, at least his disfavor, but I, I, I can uh, die. Should I take a huge risk right now or should I so fear the present results that I guarantee future pain? And it's a hard choice for people to make. They don't want to make a choice and so the choice is made for them. Um, it happens like, uh, let me just give you some examples. Chain smokers. Uh, they may have smoked for many years and the doctor warns them, you know, if you don't quit, you're going to get emphysema. Maybe cancer, but emphysema. And so they don't like that choice. That's something that's off in the future. But they don't like the choice in the present either of the pain of, and the misery of getting off of those uh, cigarettes. And so they just take the path of least resistance. They don't make a choice, but they made a choice already by not making a choice. Okay, and and you can see this. Uh, you can see this all across uh, life. It's, uh, I think human nature to take the path of least resistance and the path of least resistance I don't know why God has done it this way but usually ends up to be not the right pathway um, how many people have medical conditions could have been reversed when they had been warned earlier if they had taken proactive uh, um, uh, uh, made a proactive decision but you know they don't feel so bad now things don't seem like they're that bad and you know it'd be a costly uh, thing and it's going to take time out of my schedule and it's inconvenient and by the time they're ever ready to make a decision it's too late because of their procrastination by failing to weigh the al alternatives it's too late well i think that's what's happening in the area of persecution in sudan sudan is an incredibly strategic country for the muslims penetrating the south for christians penetrating the north and I think what happens to Sudan is going to seal the fate of many southern 
nations in Africa, and those southern nations know it, and yet they are not taking the kind of actions that could be taking that could be taken to avert that. And I think that's many times true of uh, of um, Western governments and of uh, of um, Christians within those governments as well. But the same is true in the good old United States of America. You know, it's inconvenient to step up to the plate when you see the tyranny of an agency like social services breaking and entering uh, with a police officer, no warrant, kidnapping the kids. Why? Because somebody anonymously reported them as spanking their children and said that, you know, that that was child abuse. And they find out, you know, a year later in the courts it wasn't child abuse, but look at all the trauma that the children have gone through. And... That happens, oh, that's in another state. You know, that's far off there. And what Christians do is they just tend to insulate themselves from those kinds of actions. We need to realize things never remain static. Things either get worse or they get better. And we need to weigh the alternatives of my involvement or my non-involvement. Now, there are times where it's not needful for us to be involved. But I think we tend to be very short-term cited in, in terms of these things, our schedule, our circumstances, all kinds of things drive us except for the thing that ought to be driving us, planning for the future. And here is, I think, the nub of the problem. We are driven by our circumstances. Our circumstances take dominion over us instead of us taking dominion over the circumstances. If you don't plan, things happen, and it usually ain't good. <laughs> um, I won't tell you the expression that happens, but... Um, uh, the circumstances she has, she's out of favor with the king. She's not seen him for 30, year, uh, 30 days, verse 11. And so she's got a great excuse as to why she can't be involved. She could say, hey, you know, if I had an opportunity to go to the king, I'd whisper in his ear, you know, that my life is in danger. I'd do what needs to be done, but hey, I can't go in there. And it seems like a very reasonable excuse. And what Mordecai says is, look, this is serious stuff. You need to change your circumstances or try to do something about this. And there are times where we come up with excuses. And I think, brothers and sisters, I think what we need to do is we need to think not just in terms of what is reasonable uh, with our circumstances, but if it's important, if God's calling is upon you, don't be driven by the circumstances. Think outside the box. We, we need to be asking, Lord, what is it over the whole course of my life that you have shaped and molded me and trained me and even in terms of my personality made me to do? Why am I not doing it? And many times it's just circumstances that could be changed if you'd be willing to think outside the box. And uh, I just encourage you to do that. Point seven, try to think of what God has shaped you for. Okay, I already dealt with that. Um, point eight, Remember that God ordinarily uses people and means of achieving his goals. In other words, don't look for a miracle if you can do it, right? A lot of times, a lot of times we have it within our power to do something about a need that's in the community, but we pray that the Lord would do a miracle instead. God could very easily have um, sent angels out to do the work of evangelism, and they would have done a whole lot better job than we. But God chose to use sinful, weak creatures like you and me. And the reason he uses us is not because he needs us. I mean, that's the most ridiculous thought, that he needs us to do anything. He chooses to use you and me so that we, in the process of doing these kinds of ministries, so that we become totally dependent upon Him. We're cast upon Him. We learn to know God and His grace, His power in our life. It matures us. It causes us to grow more and more into His image. That's why He allows us to be involved in some of these different, uh, in, in some of these different um, uh, ministries. And if we fail to respond, let me tell you something, God's purposes are not thwarted. No way. No way. His kingdom will advance. Mordecai knows that. He says, if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. So God always has his alternatives. Uh, Mordecai knows they can't be exterminated. And he's saying, listen, Esther, it seems that you probably have been placed in this position, all of the trauma that you've gone through, precisely for this reason. He's trying to help her to think, what has God crafted her life for? <clears throat> and uh, one of the points that I want to make here, and this is a, a lesson to hyper-Calvinists, okay? He says, if, okay, if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from another place. 
Um, God has lots of ifs in the Scripture. Okay, these are co called contingencies. He's got lots of ifs in the Scripture. For example, Jesus' response to the Pharisees who wanted the children to be quiet is Jesus said, hey, if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now, the ifs are part of God's plan. Okay, so this is perfectly Calvinistic. They're part of his, uh, his plan. The contingencies are ordained by God, but they're still contingencies. And I think that's the important we, that we need to get through, through, through our skull. For example, God commanded the first generation of Israelites to conquer the land. They refused. They said, hey, we're grasshoppers in their sight. We can't do this. They're driven by their circumstances rather than being driven by the promises of God. So what does God say? Okay, if you're not willing to do it, I'll have somebody else do it. I'm going to put you up on a shelf. You're going to wander for 40 years in the wilderness, and I will accomplish my purposes, but it's not going to be through you. And so a man reaps what uh, he or reaps what he sows. Um, God can handle our failures, but we lose. God's plans do not fail when we become immobilized by fear, but we can lose out. Now, having said manufacturing company, uh, which is now Lucent Technologies, was Elisha Gray, and his patent application for the telephone was delivered to the patent office on exactly the same day that um, Alexander Graham Bell's was delivered, and uh, they were just delivered by couriers a few hours apart. Maybe it was a couple hours, I forget, but it was, it was hours apart. And Alexander Graham Bell got his there first, and so he was the one that got the patent. Now, it would be very easy for a person to just grow discouraged and give up. No, he doesn't. He's down, he gets up, and he tries again. And he ends up getting 70 different patents. And uh, even though you may not be inventors, it doesn't matter. The same principle applies. When you fail, you need to get up and you need to try again. And you fail again, you need to get up and try again. There is nothing shameful about failing. What is shameful is where you don't try, right? Failing means you've tried. You're trying to go forward. You failed this time, but you're going to get up and you're going to go on again. You look at all of the inventors who are out there, they've probably had far more failures than they have had successes, right? And I think we need to have this attitude that we're not going to get up, give up the moment that uh, something does not uh, go our way. Uh, uh, who knows whether you've come to such a king uh, to the kingdom at uh, such a time as this and it may be your 17th try you know that uh, is going to be the thing that's prospering and the Lord has allowed you to have all of these failures to cause you to grow to cause you to trust him to cause you to learn perseverance or whatever other character issues may be there make a plan verse 16 she spends the next three days trying to figure out, what am I going to say? You know, what am I going to do? Now, God gives us guidance many times as we're already obedient and moving to what he's revealed to us. And just like a ship, you know, well, I guess barges could steer it, but a ship cannot steer itself unless it is moving. Uh, I think we cannot find guidance in our lives or what the Lord wants us to do unless we're already being obedient to what God has called us to. We're moving out there and the Lord opens up opportunities and he gives direction to us. But I don't need to spend much time on that. Tenth thing that we see here is the need to be willing to prayerfully take risks. Okay, verse 16. Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Some of us almost never take risks, almost never take steps of faith, and that is simply not Christian. It is not Christian. Now, it is proper and it is Christian to try to minimize your risks, right? That's what planning is all about. You're trying to minimize as many risks as you are able to do. That's called risk management, but it is not proper to avoid all risk simply for comfort's sake. It's proper to pray, but when you fail to make decisions because of the risk, you've already taken a much larger risk, and the much larger risk is you may not amount to anything that God had intended you and enabled you uh, to be able to amount to. See, I'd rather fail trying and get up again than to risk nothing and to gain nothing. I think it's really important that we do uh, take risks for the cause of Christ. Um, I think a lot of us are like Bilbo Baggins was at the beginning. 
Um, some of you have seen the movie Lord of the Rings, but there's a book before Lord of the Rings uh, called The Hobbit, and that's where you're introduced to this uh, character who never risked anything up to that time. And I think for many of us, like, uh, like Bilbo Baggins, our life is so neat and tidy and orderly that we don't like changes. And when a Gandalf knocks at our door with opportunity, our first impulse is to say, no way, I, I just don't want the risk. Uh, that's involved in taking that opportunity. And what I would say to you is if we risk nothing lost, then we will risk that nothing will be gained because there is always risk. A lot of people don't realize that. They think they're avoiding risk by not making decisions. No, they're, they're taking worse and worse risks all the time. Risk is unavoidable. Either way that Esther went, she was facing risk. Now, you know what the ministries and the opportunities and the things and responsibilities that God has for you are, and I'm not even going to try to apply them in your life because you'll probably just argue with me, especially if it's an emotional issue. I'll let you argue with the, the Holy Spirit. But uh, what I want to encourage you on is to look at the end of this book and the incredible results that came from her taking that risk. It made the risk well worthwhile. God has never been a debtor to anybody who's given his all to him. He's never been a debtor. He doesn't just pay back what you've given. He multiplies it 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. And so I would urge you to imitate Esther who had a heart of moral courage. And we already looked a couple of weeks ago at what was involved in that heart of moral courage. She did the right thing, even though there was danger and risk involved. And the Lord gave her wisdom. And I'm not going to cover the 11th point there. It's just there for your meditation. But it summarizes the kind of uh, people that God gives wisdom to. He does not give wisdom in the abstract just to make us comfortable or uh, because we're cu curious about the future. No. The reason he gives us wisdom is because, number one, we've proved fav faithful to use the wisdom to serve him. But if you look at those points under 11, he gives wisdom to those who tremble before him. He gives wisdom to those with humility, those with teachableness, those who have diligence to serve him with what they know, those with uprightness and those with faith. And so I would charge you to be a congregation of faith and the moral courage of Esther when you face your own personal crises. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the examples of both Mordecai and Esther, and I pray that like Mordecai, we would be as iron uh, sharpening iron. We would encourage and stir one another on to good works. But like Esther, that we would be willing to receive that correction. And Father, that we would be willing to take the risks that are needed for us to lead our families as we ought, uh, to take the risks that are needed, Father, of failing. Some of us, Father, hate failure so much that we would rather do nothing than to fail. Father, forgive us for that unfaithfulness to you. And I pray that you would stir up within us such a passion to see your glory uh, being advanced in our lives, in our families, or wherever you've called us to, Father, that we would be willing to take that risk, uh, even if it means laying down our life for the cause of Christ. And I pray, Father, through this church, you would be glorified. Your kingdom would be advanced. And I just pray that you would hear us as we pray together the prayer that Christ taught us to pray. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.